and find the waterway that would link the Atlantic and Pacific, if such a waterway existed. The expedition was also to discover and chart topographic features of the country and catalog the wildlife and plants and identify Indian tribes and languages they spoke. To lead such an expedition, Jefferson selected his personal secretary, Captain Meriwether Lewis. Lewis was 28 years old and a Virginian. He had served in the Army and attained the rank of Captain. He was an efficient organizer and a leader of men. However, he was reluctant to take such an undertaking alone and asked his friend William Clark to join the expedition as a co-leader. Jefferson had no objection and Clark eagerly accepted the role. William Clark was also a veteran of Indian warfare and, like Lewis, was a Virginian. In addition, Clark was a geographical expert and he would ultimately be responsible for the preparation of the journals and the day-to-day -day records of the momentous journey. Captain Lewis spent months in Washington with Jefferson planning the expedition. By July of 1803, shortly after the Louisiana Purchase was approved by Congress, Lewis was ready to leave Washington. He traveled by horseback to the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry and purchased guns for the expedition and had them shipped to St. Louis. He went on to Pittsburgh and had workmen build a 55-foot keelboat for the voyage up the Missouri River. When he reached St. Louis, he and Clark began choosing men for the voyage of discovery, looking for 25 men who were used to the hardships and rigors of the frontier. It was to be a military operation, and they would be soldiers, subject to military discipline and regulations, and for every man who was chosen, many were rejected. The winter of 1803-1804 was spent gathering supplies. The list was formidable. Instruments for navigation, 150 yards of oiled cloth to be made into tents and sheets, saws, hatchets, and shovels. Lewis ordered 3,400 pounds of flour, 4,000 pounds of salt pork, 50 pounds of coffee, 100 gallons of whiskey, and tobacco. Since he was going into the unknown, he bought 193 pounds of portable soup, a thick paste made of boiled beef and compressed vegetables for emergencies. For Indian trade, he bought 144 mirrors, 4,600 needles, thread, ivory, combs, cloth, and steel tomahawks. He purchased flannel shirts and woolen pants for the men, along with powder horns and 500 rifle flints and 170 pounds of gunpowder. Before leaving, Lewis and Clark hired George Drouillard, a French-Canadian who could speak some Indian languages as an interpreter. One other member in the party was an African-American named York, a slave Clark had inherited from his father. On the 14th of May, 1804, Captains Lewis and Clark, along with their 27-man crew, started up the Missouri in the keelboat and two large flat-bottom canoes. From St. Louis, the Missouri zigzagged west for nearly 300 miles before turning northward. The voyagers now were seeing great herds of buffalo, elk, and antelope. Each night as the men camped, Clark was taking notes describing the countryside and collecting plant specimens and making maps. The voyage of discovery reached the Platte River near present-day Council Bluffs at the end of July, and a few days later met their first Indians. The Indians were familiar with white men, and had been trading with them for several years, and they warmly welcomed Lewis and Clark and their men. Farther north up the Missouri, however, and two days later, they met some Teton Sioux, and the Sioux were decidedly not so friendly. After a council meeting with three of the chiefs, 
and after offering them whiskey, Clark was suddenly accosted by several warriors demanding presents and whiskey of their own. When Clark refused, the Indians became belligerent and strung their bows. Clark realized he could not back down, and he drew his sword. But he was heavily outnumbered and was saved only when the soldiers in the keelboat raised their guns and threatened to shoot. Then the Indians withdrew. It was the first warlike confrontation the Voyagers had had with Indians. It would not be the last. As winter neared and cold winds began to blow, with a hint of snow to come, the men crossed the 47th parallel into what is now North Dakota. They camped for the winter near some Mandan villages near present-day Bismarck, where the Missouri River left its northward course and turned west. The Mandans were peaceable and made the Voyagers welcome. Lewis and Clark and their men built a log fort next to the Indian villages, named it Fort Mandan, and waited for spring. The Mandans, now they weren't hostile at all, leastways not then. They were farming engines and grew some beans and corn and squash and traded their vittles for some beads and gewgaws, and that way the captains and their men made it through the winter. The captains still had a problem trying to work out. They knew where they wanted to go, but they didn't know how to get there. Right then, that's where they had a stroke of luck. They met a French trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau, who was staying in the village with his squaw, a woman named Sacagawea. Well, they didn't think too much of Charbonneau. He was lazy and kind of a hanger-on around the village. But Sacagawea, now, she was what they needed. She was a Shoshone from up in the Rocky Mountains, and her engine name was the Bird Woman. She'd been captured when she was 12 or 13 years old, and when she growed up, Charbonneau bought her from a Hadatsa Sioux Indian, and she became his squaw. She remembered the route back to the mountains, but the only way the captains could get the girl was to hire Charbonneau, too. Sacagawea was probably 16 or 17 years old when Lewis and Clark met her. She was pregnant, and her son, Jean Baptiste, was born on February 11, 1805, while the Voyagers were in camp. The winter on the upper Missouri had been severe, and it was not until the end of March that the ice on the river began to break up. While they were waiting, Lewis and Clark spent most of their time drawing maps and making detailed notes on their journey from St. Louis. With the coming of spring, they were anxious to move on. The big keelboat was no longer of use, and they sent it back to St. Louis with their notes and some plant specimens they had gathered. On April 7th, the voyage of discovery started up the Missouri in light canoes with Sacagawea, her baby, and Charbonneau. And with a new name, a military name, the Corps of Discovery. It was, of course, a military expedition. Ain't no question but that Sacagawea was what they needed. She knew the way back to the mountains from where she'd been captured. And if anybody could be a better guide, I don't know who it'd be. The big thing was her baby. If she went, she was going to take her baby, too. And by gum, that's what she'd done. She made an engine cradle board, slung it on her back, and took that baby all the way over the mountains and back again. Two months later, the Voyagers reached the Great Falls of the Missouri, at present-day Great Falls, Montana, and spent 25 days carrying their canoes and provisions around the turbulent water. Back on the river again, Sacagawea told them of a Shoshone camp near the headwaters of the Salmon River. Lewis took a small party of men and started to find the camp where they hoped to get horses to finish their voyage to the Pacific. Lewis located the camp and asked several warriors and a chief named Camelwaite to accompany him back to Captain Clark at the Jefferson River. 
Some of the Shoshone refused, fearing Lewis was leading them to an ambush. But Lewis persisted, and finally Camelweight and a few warriors said they would go. When Camelweight got into the camp, Sacagawea kept looking at him, and he didn't know what to make of that, and he backed away. She started talking Shoshone to him. And then she started crying and grabbed him and hugged him. Well, it turned out that Chief Camelweight was Sacagawea's brother, and she hadn't seen him since the Hadatsa captured her and carried her away. The meeting of Camelweight and Sacagawea was one of the strange quirks of history that happened from time to time. The Shoshones had been camped on the same spot five years before when a large raiding party of the Hadatsa attacked them. The Shoshones ran into the woods in an effort to hide, but the Hidatsa caught them and killed four men, four women, and some boys, and captured several women, including Sacagawea. Camelweight arranged for Shoshone horses for the men of the Corps of Discovery and crossed the Rocky Mountains. When they reached an open valley at the Clearwater Valley, they traded their horses to Nez Perce Indians and hollowed out trees to make dugout canoes. Whitewater rapids at the Snake River slowed them. But soon they were on the Columbia, and on November 15th, they got their first glimpse of the Pacific Ocean. They had traversed the continent. But the one thing President Jefferson had hoped to find, the Northwest Passage, did not exist. The men of the Corps of Discovery built a 50 by 50 log fort they called Fort Clatsop on the south bank of the Columbia, virtually within sight of the Pacific, and wintered there. On March 23rd, when the weather broke, they started the long trip home, retracing their steps until they reached the mouth of Lolo Creek in present-day western Montana. There on July 3rd, the party split, with Clark exploring the Yellowstone River and Lewis going overland to the Great Falls of the Missouri. Lewis veered to the north to explore the Maria's River in northern Montana, the farthest north the Corps would go. At Cutbank Creek, near present-day Cutbank, Montana, their luck turned bad. The captains and the men had been powerful lucky. They'd gone up over the mountains and back again and nobody had been killed. About the worst they had seen was some engines trying to steal some guns and maybe some horses. Of course, a part of that was because everything was set up like an army outfit, which of course it was. They were all soldiers and they was careful all the time. They put out guards every night and even a young brave looking to get himself a horse and become a real warrior was going to think again if and he thought he might get killed. Of course now, remember, in all this time the captains hadn't run up against the Blackfeet. That was a different story. The Blackfeet were a warring people, and they were always on the warpath. If they couldn't find any crow engines to fight, they'd just fight amongst themselves. On July 26th, Captain Lewis and two privates in the Corps, brothers Reuben and Joseph Field, were on Cutbank Creek when they saw a herd of 30 horses far off in the distance. Lewis took out his telescope, and he could make out several Indians on a small rise, obviously looking at something that had caught their attention. Lewis's interpreter, George Druyard, had left Lewis and the Field brothers and gone ahead to hunt for buffalo or deer. Lewis was sure the Indians had spotted him. Lewis counted eight Indians, that there were 30 horses, and he felt there was a strong possibility that more Indians were nearby. When he saw the Indians were becoming agitated and started looking in his direction, he was sure the Indians had spotted him and the Field Brothers. He didn't know who the Indians were, but they were far north of any he had met before and could not tell whether they were warlike or friendly. 
He had Joseph Field unfurl an American flag, and the three men slowly advanced toward the Indians. The Indians were obviously alarmed, milling their horses and talking among themselves. Suddenly a brave broke away from the others and charged straight toward the three men at a full gallop. As the brave came on, Lewis dismounted and stood beside his horse in what he hoped would be a sign of peace. A few hundred feet before he reached Lewis, the brave suddenly turned and galloped back, still riding at full speed to the Indians on the hill. As the Indians huddled in consultation, Lewis saw they were all young, probably only in their teens. Lewis and the Field brothers advanced toward the Indians. When they were a hundred yards away, the Field brothers stopped and Lewis continued alone to meet a single brave who was coming to meet him. The two men made peace signs, then both dismounted. The Indians asked for a pipe and tobacco, but Drew Yard had those with him, and he had not yet returned, so Lewis sent Reuben Field and one of the braves to find him. While waiting, Lewis suggested that the Indians and his men camp together that night. Shortly, Drew Yard and the brave returned. During the evening, with Drew Yard using sign language, Lewis learned the Indians were Pygan Blackfeet, part of a large hunting party a day's ride away. He also found that the Blackfeet had been trading at a British trading post six days away in Canada. Lewis and Driard talked with the Blackfeet until nearly midnight. Just before dawn, Lewis was startled awake when he heard Driard shout, Let go my gun! One of the Indians had jerked Driard's rifle away when he saw a chance to steal the white man's guns. Lewis reached for his rifle, but it too was gone. He grabbed his horse pistol and ran toward a second Indian who had taken his rifle and was trying to get away. Lewis jerked it back, and the Indian ran. Another Indian had gotten both the Fields brothers' rifles and was running off with them when both the Fields caught him. In a scuffle, Reuben Field grabbed a knife from his belt and stabbed the Indian in the breast and recovered the rifles. In the meantime, two other Indians were trying to drive off the horses, and Lewis chased them to the edge of a bluff. Cornered, the Indians who had a British musket raised the musket and prepared to shoot Lewis. Lewis shot first, hitting the brave in the stomach. The fight had taken only a minute or so, but one Indian had been killed, another mortally wounded, and a third was behind a boulder, armed with a rifle. Lewis called the Field brothers and drew yard back. Afraid that other warriors had heard the shooting and would soon come, the men gathered their horses and equipment, along with the Corps' journals and notes, and rode hard back down the Missouri. The Pygans did not pursue them. But that early confrontation would have a long-reaching effect on relations between the Blackfeet and white settlers in the years to come. The two parties of the Corps of Discovery met at the junction of the...